Finding new wines in the store is such a challenge. Thankfully, NakedWines.com connects everyday wine drinkers and winemakers more closely than ever before, granting you access to unique and exclusive wines from across the globe. Better yet, by funding winemakers directly, they remove a huge chunk of costs that would typically be passed on to you, so you can save up to 60% on all of your wine. And with over 2 million customer reviews, you can easily determine which wine is right for you. Get $100 off your first order. Try 12 of NakedWines.com's favorites for only $79. Just visit NakedWines.com slash MLB to claim your offer. Again, that's NakedWines.com slash MLB. To the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and constant companion, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hey, so I was at the Red Sox Astros series this weekend, and uh, one of the things I did while I was there was talk to Astros rookie Derek Fisher, who you might notice has no hair on top and a full beard. And he uh-huh. is one of five Astros, along with Carlos Beltran, Evan Gaddis, Brian McCann, and Mike Fires, to have that hairstyle, as long uh-huh. as well as three members of the Red Sox. That's David Price, Sandy Leone, and Dustin Pedroia. And that's not even counting guys like Craig Kimbrell and Jackie Bradley, who have sort of a high and tight look with the full beard. So I just want to say that I'm very happy that this is taking hold as someone who hasn't shaved in many, many years <laughs> and is in... Like just looking at my grandfather, I'm in mortal fear of losing my hair at a very young age. So I would like this haircut to stay in style uh, yeah. until until such time as I lose my hair. So I'm, yeah. I'm optimistic, just judging by the fact that even rookies are doing this. Yeah. So you're in favor of it even before you lose the hair, just the preemptive bald look. Uh, I mean, there's a point like I turned 30 this year and Mm -hmm. I definitely don't have as much hair up top as as I used to. But like you wouldn't Mm -hmm. look at me and say that I'm going bald yet. But Uh there's going to be a point at which I like I don't want to look like John Smoltz. Um, (laughs) So so, like you now have role models to follow. Yeah. Once it starts to go, like it's all going to go. And I don't think I'm close to that point yet, but just judging by McCann and and Derek Fisher and David Price, I'm I'm hoping that that, uh, this is still an acceptable look because I don't want to have to start shaving again once I lose my hair. So yeah, we will we will keep you updated on how baldness impacts MLB clubhouses as, as yeah. the years go on. Please do. Well, I can get you a, a dollar shave club yeah, code I know. If, if you ever need to shave again. Just uh, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I I hope that you retain your hair as long as you'd like to, but I can't say I'm not looking forward to the David Price era of your hair. <laughs> That's uh, be a good look for you probably. Yeah. All right. So we have a, no pun intended, cutting edge episode for you today. Later in the episode, we'll be talking to Andrew Perpetua, who's a writer for Rotographs and runs the XStats site about StatCast stats and using them to predict actual stats. But before that, we are going to get to someone who has been on the leading edge of research into pitching and training and motion tracking. We are joined now by Kyle Bodie, the founder and president of Driveline Baseball, the data-driven training program and facility. Hey, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So just looking at your tweets, it looks like a 
number of draftees from last week were driveline clients. How many guys in the draft do you think you have worked with roughly? Oh, this year? Uh, you know, I don't actually have the number right in front of me. Um, probably about 10 or 12 or so directly. And then um, a few other, and then just a bunch nationally and kind of off and on. Mm-hmm. And how does working with amateur guys differ from working with pro guys? Are they more receptive? Are they easier to teach because the habits aren't as ingrained? Is there as much resistance from their programs and coaches? Yeah, you know, it just really depends, especially for college guys. I think you hit the nail on the head. It depends on the school they're going to. You know, so if it's an Oregon State or a Vanderbilt, it's a really seamless transition. Uh, and if it's a school that's more resistant to what we're trying to do, then it can be tricky. Sometimes they have to hide it. But in general, amateurs are way more interested in what we have to offer than the kind of entrenched pro guys, although that's uh, changed significantly over the last few years. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, you know better than most people that the quality and philosophy of pitching coaching varies widely from program to program. So how much do you work with the college coaches to, you know, when you're talking about one of one of your clients versus the pitching coach at his school? Uh, yeah, hopefully it's a great, hopefully it's a great partnership. Hopefully like at Oregon State or at Vanderbilt, some other situation like that. Um I'm good friends with a pitching coach and we kind of work back and forth, you know, here's what works for our guys and what may not work for you. And I learn a lot from them for the other organizations. It can be tough. They may be resistant or not want to talk to us or want to work with us or just kind of bury their head in the sand. So in that case, we try to advise the kids to keep it on the down low and be able to do their work on their own. Um, and so it can be a point of friction for sure. You know, it just depends on the off season where they're at, if they can come here or depends if their coach sends them out to summer ball or if there'll be retaliatory action, if they're using our stuff, which is not uncommon, unfortunately, it does happen. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting minefield to navigate, uh, to say the least. Mm. And so now that you've been doing this for a while, you are fairly established. You've worked with big leaguers or guys who become big leaguers. You had a chapter about driveline and Jeff Passons, the arm. So what you do is is better known than it used to be. How much easier is it now to sell players on what you're doing or, or convince players that this is worth trying or attract new clients than it was at the beginning when you hadn't yet made a name for yourself? Yeah, it's really, it's really easy. Uh, the players are all, players are very receptive. I should say that the players are almost always really interested in what we have to do. And that can range from established big leaguers to, you know, high school pitchers. Uh, in today's game, work that, you know, you guys are no small part responsible for have really pushed information in general in baseball, whether it's sabermetrics or just in just general better quantitative writing about the game. And that's the Fangraphs baseball perspective, really dating all the way back to guys like Pete Palmer, who really started it all. And so that we're writing the coattails of that, to be totally honest. So players more and more are more and more interested and information in general about the game. And so then we're just an extension of that. It's a little bit different. It's on the different side of the game. It's on the player development side rather than the operations or scouting. But it doesn't matter. That revolution has changed how people think about the game in general. And so that makes it really easy. The players are super interested. And it's the coaches and the, the people that have been in the game longer that are a little bit more resistant just because it's something different. But the younger the people are, I mean, the, the more receptive they are to it. And so we found it to be really easy with the players. Uh, it's just about integrating, bridging that gap between players and, and coaches on where we got to go next. And how do you bridge that gap? Because this, I mean, there's a two-step process. There's actually doing the research, developing the techniques, and then communicating it. So, you know, how do you choose the the language that you use to explain stuff like this to players? And, you know, how involved of a process is that? 
yeah, there's a subset of coaches who just love reading uh, published research and stuff that we have on our blog, and then we have some peer-reviewed research going down the pike this this summer, which I think will help a lot with those coaches. And that subsection of coaching is increasing significantly every year. The more that uh, mid-30s and young 30s coaches are entering those D1 coaching ranks, uh, they're more and more interested in what's actually true rather than what's actually been done. Uh, and then when it comes to some older coaches, you know, the 40s, 50s, coaches that have been around for a long time but are open-minded, a lot of it's just that translation machine. We have to kind of d- not dumb it down. It's not that, but it's about translating what we're doing into on-field results. Like this is some make it make our stuff their words essentially. We want them to win the conversation as as much as we can, uh, rather than us try to tell them it's something new. In a lot of cases, the coaches probably believe in the underlying principles and the science of what we're trying to do. Uh, they just see it so differently that the, they think the implements that we use are so weird, so it's hard for them to accept. And so a lot of that is just earning their trust uh, and having a lot of feel. That's such a big part of the game. And just figuring out how they view the game and how this stuff is really no different than how they, they see the game. Unfortunately, if they're into throwing the ball 100 feet, 100 feet and doing towel drills and running a lot, and not believe and like believing that bunts are good, like there's it's going to be an impasse. It's going to be really tough to convince someone like that that that's a good idea. But in a large case, a lot of the coaches are really receptive to getting players better. At the end of the day, all the coaches want their players to get better. So it's about finding the one thing we can hold on to, and just kind of hammer on that point uh, going from there. It all starts from a good human relationship before it does more talking about quantitative baseball stuff in general. Yeah. And that's, that mirrors with my own experience covering college baseball. Cause you do see the, the generation gap between some of the younger coaches and some of the older guys who, you know, even date back to like the seventies and eighties who are kind of getting out of the game. Now it's not just like a, a level of curiosity or a felicity with quantitative data. It's there's like a desire for control, which I imagine has to be, hard to get around when you're trying to, you know, you are actually to some extent taking these players out of, out of the control of their coaches that I have to imagine has to be difficult to navigate. Yeah, that actually exactly happened with the Los Angeles Dodgers when we were working with them. That was um, an unforeseen consequence at the time, um, which sounds like something we should have figured out going into it. But uh, we had the full support of the front office. Uh, we were working under Gabe Kapler and then Nick Francona. And we worked with a bunch of players who were going to extended spring training, probably not good enough to be assigned to a team. And some of them were cut candidates for sure. And the group as a whole got very significantly good results and two very big outliers who are pitching at the advanced levels now uh, and factor to be prospects after being organizational arms at best. And we didn't really factor in the thing that was going to happen when we were working on the field is they're seeing these huge gains with someone that's not their coach. And that split is really awkward. It can be. And it certainly was at the time because, like, oh, right, you know, they're with an organization for a little bit. They're not getting great results. They do something different with contractors they bring in, and all of a sudden they get, you know, get really good results. And so that's, that can be difficult to manage. So we've actually changed how we interface with the pro teams significantly after that experience. Again, they were 100% behind it. The coaches were behind it, too. You know, it was great. But it just led to some awkward situations that are just unavoidable that we had to kind of figure out the best way to go forward with. If we're going to work with a pro team now, it's going to look a lot different than it did when we were with the Dodgers. Can you tell us how or, or anything about how it looks different now? You know, so we don't, in full disclosure, we don't really have another, we haven't done a full intervention type thing with a team since then. Some teams send mm-hmm. us players, that, and that is really effective. So that some teams, um, a team sent us 10 players last year during the fall instructs time period, and they just trained exclusively out of our facility. Uh, and that was significantly better because they get the results here. They're not 
you know, on their, they're not on their turf. So let's say it was the Dodgers that sent us the players. We're not in Camelback Ranch, like messing with their players. You know, we're not with the uniformed Dodgers players. They're in our facility and their coaches visit. And so that was a much better dynamic. But if we were going to involve ourselves like with the team, and we do have some negotiations for some three-year contracts with teams right now, that's going to be Someone from our facility is going to have to be uniformed, is going to have to work uh, you know, every day with the players, is going to have to be part of that coaching staff for a significant period of time, whether that's three, six months, or even a full year. That's a better partnership. So rather than a six-month trial balloon, for example, it would have to be more of a commitment to like a year, probably three years minimum, that we're like, okay, we're going to do this together. Uh, and then that, that makes it a lot easier. Like we're all in this together for this defined period of time. And, um, we haven't signed one of those contracts yet. We're getting fairly close with at least one team. And that's, um, I think we think that's, I think that's probably the best way to go. And the team that we're talking to now seems to agree that that's the best way to move forward. So you mentioned that you're kind of riding the coattails of the larger analytical movement that's made teams and players more receptive to these ideas, but you're also doing original research. So what do you think Driveline's greatest contributions to the movement have been? I think the greatest contribution that we've made is probably just a quantification of some training techniques that have been around for like legitimately almost a century. The idea of underload and overload training dates back God knows how long, but actually like the most popular use of it was probably in the 20s through the 40s. Uh, with East German and Soviet researchers. Um, we're experimenting with a wide variety of techniques, uh, but uh, overload and underload training was really popular or became started to become popular in the uh, field events, so shot put and javelin and hammer. And that continues today. is very popular in track and field around the world. But a lot of the work had either not been translated from Russian into English and still is not, um, or the books that have been written by leading sports scientists in Russia that are being translated are not at all about baseball. So for us, it was about translating a lot of the weighted ball work that had been proven to work by people like Dr. Kupta Ren of the University of Hawaii. He had multiple published research papers that showed that this worked, so we just picked it up and demonstrated it on a more uh, higher level group of athletes, college and pro athletes, and then we're able to publish it openly. And so I think that's honestly the biggest push that we've had. We're going to our peer reviewed papers that we are pushing forward soon will be published in open access journals. So full data is disclosed. I've always been a fan growing up of the open software movement and free software. Um, open source work has always been a big thing of mine when I was a software developer. And to me the the best part of the worst the best part of sabermetrics movements are people that disclose their data and methods and the worst parts of the black boxes. And so for me, uh, knowing that we have to keep some of the trade secrets under the hood, I get that, uh, but we want to be able to disclose as much as possible openly um, so people can replicate and work on that. And that's um, unfortunately not very popular in research, but uh, we have a bunch of replication peer-reviewed papers that we plan on publishing uh, on a wide variety of topics because I think it's I think it's really important. So you mentioned track and some of the old Eastern Bloc countries training techniques that you're sort of updating and, and researching on. Where else have you looked for inspiration for training techniques? Um, really, track and field is so much further ahead than every other sport that that was really the main one we looked at. That was the big one. Also, just published research on baseball training exists and has for decades. Uh, that's uh, mostly pushed by, uh, again, Dr. Coop Duran, but uh, also Mark Versturgeon, uh, Alan Blitzblau, and a few other notable kind of sports scientists and trainers have published quite a bit of research that, for whatever reason, had gone ignored for decades. And so the experimentation, it's really just a perfect storm. If we were doing this 
like if the company was where it is now 20 years ago, it'd probably be a pretty dismal failure. But I, I really think it can't be overstated how important um, the Saber Metrics movement has been to our business because you have a whole generation of kids who have read Moneyball or watched the movie or have watched the A's or the Red Sox or the Cubs or the Indians, uh, these forward-thinking teams, and they, they get it. You know, and it's um it's huge because that makes them open to everything else. And are there any myths that you've been able to puncture, or or maybe just some beliefs that hadn't been backed up by data that you actually have been able to confirm? But in the areas of velocity, say, or spin rate, I know you've studied those things a lot. Is there anything that players are still taught that isn't supported by the evidence, or or things that you have managed to confirm? Uh, there's a basically, I would say over 90% of what is taught pitching-wise at the pro and college level is not backed by any sort of data. So Mm -hmm. I guess we could go with basically anything is taught. And and a big thing that we see ourselves doing is like, let's take every, let's take the coaching cues that are being said and the training ideas that are being taught. And let's just, let's just test it in the lab and let's see what shakes out. Let's see if it's true or not. But like some of the big ones that we fight every day are that like weighted ball, weighted implement throwing and use is harmful to the arm. And yet every single peer-reviewed paper, including a large one by Dr. Fleissig last year, shows that that's not the case. Like there is no, there is no data that shows that weighted ball training is more like increases the propensity of injuries of the arm. And yet there's just a slew of papers written by multiple authors that show that there are po- positive effects on velocity and some show positive effects on command. So you're facing a mountain of evidence. It's not much different than some some of the modern political things of our time that I guess I don't we don't even get into, but like where there's just mountains of evidence that something is true, and yet you have a fairly large and significant group of people who are just like saying that's it's not true because this one paper shows that it isn't, or you know my belief is that it's not true, uh, and that's baseball in general. So you know weightlifting is bad for an example. That's one of them. That's just not true. Like, like towel drills are effective. Like that's definitely false. There's just a huge amount of stuff that's taught that is um, just not true. And so some of it is like some of it is definitely MythBuster work that we're trying to do for sure. So weighted balls are one of the you know people say drive line. That's one of the first things that people think about. What is the benefit of of using a weighted ball or an underweight ball in drills as opposed to weightlifting or, or some other technique? It's hard to say what exactly the root, why it actually makes people better, which is definitely something that, which is the target of a big research paper we have, a six-week trial we have going on this summer. Uh, it's very similar in cases like, it, it's very similar to, in a weird way, to like antidepressant drugs and things like that, where we don't actually know the root cause of mechanism, like the root mechanism that actually causes the change. The theories that we have that seem to be backed up by anecdotal evidence or by the, by the evidence we have, but in no peer-reviewed way, is that you know use of weighted ball training uh, potentially can stimulate motor unit recruitment? Like it's much better, it's a much more efficient way to vary the vary the stimulus that's being thrown. There's tons of motor control and motor learning research papers out there that show that variable training, variable implement training, is more effective at teaching more uh, more effective at teaching optimal biomechanics than verbal coaching. Dr. Franz Bosch out of the Netherlands is a, a very prominent researcher on this topic. Uh, although there are many others, he's one that lead, leading the field, and so that's that seems to be one way that it's done. There's other theories like heavier implements can increase range of motion of the shoulder in a progressive way, so then there's a greater time to accelerate the baseball. Underload implements may speed up the arm, develop arm speed, and increase motor unit efficiency. Uh, and these are all very possible ideas that are true and things that some of my competitors say are definitely true. 
But we really, I mean, the root, the, the root cause is unknown on how it actually makes people better, which is super interesting. So that's the big target of what we're going to do this summer, where we invested many, many, you know, yeah, a lot of money into a motion capture uh, system where we can actually say the kinematics and the mechanics of a pitcher have changed, of a sample size of 25 or 30 at the beginning of this and the end of this. Uh, are this and have it, has anything changed? We have EMG sensors that are finally online and working fairly well. That we can say is motor unit recruit motor unit recruitment efficiency improving, and then we can say like the spikes of EMG uh, potentially point towards that being true. Uh, we also have force plates to test for like ground reaction forces and uh, see if those improve over time. And so that's the stuff that I'm very excited to use. We've used them clinically to make our program better over the last three years. Uh, but we finally spun up an R&D team that has about six members in it full-time that uh, can really start publishing this data and getting it into peer-reviewed journals, um, going through the IRB approval process, and um, all that fun bureaucracy that honestly is really exciting to me. Being able to get that out there in a more peer-reviewed and accepted way, I think will go a long way in how we are thought of uh, in the industry and how teams look, look at the data. So a lot of the chapter about you in the arm was about how you were trying to recruit a researcher who was then poached by the Dodgers very quickly. So I imagine that that is still a struggle for you. So as you've put together this R&D team, have you been kind of crossing your fingers that these people that are working with you will not be hired immediately by teams? Or are you kind of, you know, trying to recruit people from the same talent pool? Yeah, it's the baseball perspective of uh, (laughs) player development. Um, Yeah, Dr. Jimmy Buffy was extremely influential, and um, we miss him every day, obviously. He's with the Dodgers. But his methods were successfully reproduced by a, a person who was a PhD student here uh, and a long-time intern for us. And so he's working full-time on that now. And then another, our statistical, our quantitative analyst, the first one we hired, well, he was 18 years old out of the University of North Carolina. He spun up a eight-person analytics team for the University of North Carolina to do track man and play-by-play data. The kid is an excellent work ethic guy. And of course, as soon as he's working for us and we publicize it, the Diamondbacks picked him up. So he's working there over the summer. (laughs) And that's okay. You know, honestly, if the worst thing that's happening to your company is that your best talent is being poached by the teams, that's great because Dr. Buffy being with the Dodgers was very instrumental in us signing a contract with the Dodgers. Uh, So we'd be able to, we can see it that way. At the end of the day, we're just trying to get the best talent. And if that means that some of them work in professional baseball, then it is what it is. But a lot of them, know what it's like to work in pro ball because we work a lot of pro ball contracts and it's very much not that exciting for them like they a lot of players a lot of employees have turned down opportunities in professional baseball probably because we generally pay more but also the freedom that driveline offers is uh, significantly better than any professional team like they're able to research whatever they want we have pretty good financial resources at this point that they can spend quite a bit of money on whatever it is they need and that's what we want to be. We want to be a think tank. We want to be the DARPA. We want to be the, you know, the Xerox Park Labs that are actually, you know, <laughs> developing the new technology out there. And uh, that's what we want to do. We want to be not weighted ball people. We want to be the people that uh, develop the new new frontier player development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned the motion tracking of deliveries, and I, I know that's something that ASMI has done, and some teams, or at least the Rays, right, are reputed to have something installed in their park to capture that information in real time. 
do we know what kind of use teams are getting out of that? And what are the challenges when it comes to changing a pitcher's delivery in some way, whether it's to add velocity or to minimize strain and, and injury risk when those motions are so ingrained, probably even by the time these players come to you? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting topic on the first side of it because you have know, Tinatrax is being installed right. uh, with the Rays and I believe a few other parks, the Mets, maybe the Phillies. I don't exactly remember where else, but definitely in Tampa. And it's in a few other parks. But I've spoken to a director of R&D of a, of a team, very smart guy, and the, he's a PhD in, in computer science, I believe, specific, uh, specifically in computer vision and the problem that some of these technologies purport to have solved um, aren't problems that would aren't solutions that would best be applied to baseball first. Like if if truly we can capture biomechanics in a baseball game, that technology probably would have been demonstrated in the military or probably other areas first. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to believe that a baseball-specific application solved a computer vision problem that is known to be nearly impossible to solve. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means that like it's a it's a high barrier of of doubt for me. And I've seen some of the raw data out of it. Um, but just for an example, how do you deal with players who wear very baggy jerseys one day and then not the other? How do you deal mm-hmm. with um, the fact that jerseys are on in general and markerless tracking? doesn't generally work that well at distance. How do you travel the fact that like rotation around an axis is known to be impossible. It's not a solvable problem. So if you like give you, if you give like if everybody out there like does a thumbs down with their hand um, or with their forearm, like that, that motion is not capturable without markers on the, on the arm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, fairly difficult things to solve and actually probably impossible. So it's really interesting. How is that, how valuable will that data be? And I think that there probably is some value there, but is it worth the huge intervention? And then the second part of it is, is it worth actually changing their biomechanics? How do you do that for big leaguers? Is that even a good idea? The, the prevailing wisdom of how you change someone's mechanics, assuming that you want to, is to kind of yell at them, is to just say like verbal <laughs> cues, like get your arm in this position, do this. And all the research out there on motor learning shows that that's like legitimately one of the worst ways to teach someone. It's why a significant people who have suffered brain damage after like 30 or even really 18 or 25 may never learn to walk again because it's so frustrating to learn something that you spent you know years doing when you were younger and don't remember. And then so it's a whole field of science. There's a whole you know field of science out there on movement control and motor patterning that is really not paid attention to at all in baseball, whether it's swing changes, pitching mechanics changes, or just uh, skill acquisition and how we develop players. It's um, how we go about it in baseball, at least traditionally, is is completely in, in runs counter to what we know to work in other fields. And lastly, I know that you've started working with hitters too. Is there as much potential there to improve hitters as there is to improve pitchers? Are there as many studies being done or as many studies that you want to do and as much technology that can be brought to bear? Yeah, I think I think hitting should be a lot easier actually in a lot of ways because the weight of the implement is much larger. So the lighter it is uh, with a ball, it's nearly nothing. Um, the harder it is to make mechanical changes because there's no external feedback. So it's really tough to change movement signatures. Um, so hitting a bat's fairly heavy, and so it should be easy to make changes. And we see that even in this year with people like Ryan Zimmerman and Yonder Alonso and players who are making drastic swing changes despite being veterans in, in the game. And mm-hmm. so I think that that's definitely possible. 
what I think is a very unexplored area of baseball, but also in general, and this is, gets a lot of attention from the military, but basically nowhere else, is vision. And because it's one of the true things that we have no clue on how to express. There's no good way to say what you saw at the time when you saw it. There's no real-time way to do it. There's no way to plug into your brain to see what you see. Because what you see is separate from how it's processed. Uh, everybody sees the same thing, but how it is processed is completely different from person to person. And so is the value of Mike Trout, you know, is it his swing, which is unorthodox, but still quite good? Is it anything to do mechanically or kinematically, or is it has to do with how he processes information? And that's something that I think is the, like one of the number one things that we are researching right now and trying to figure out. And so that's using gaze tracking glasses, that's using vision training apparatuses. Uh, and I think that is going to be a huge, huge unexplored area going forward. And I think we're ahead of most teams and most organizations on that. And uh, it's something I'm really excited to to kind of delve in because, for example, like where does the hitter even look when the ball is released? Where does he look at when the ball is released? Is it all tracked all the way in on the best hitters? Is it tracked somewhere close? Uh, what I think will happen with some of the best hitters is that they're not even looking at the pitcher, like they're just gazing into the outfield. They're like have a, they're not even looking at the pitcher. So I think it's actually a fairly interesting field of study that is literally not understood in almost any field, much less baseball. And so that's where I think that there's a lot of research that can go into it. I think swing changes are mostly mind. We know what the optimal swing looks like. We know what the best way to go about it is. StatCast has really put their stamp on it to say, like, this is how it's done. Or these are the end results, that, the outputs that we want. And so we know how to do that. Like, that's, it, that field requires almost no more refinement. For us, it's about how can we process information a lot better to use that. You can have the exact same swing as Barry Bonds, but if you don't have his vision, it doesn't matter. Right, like so, what made him really good? And those are the questions that are really unanswerable, which is super, which is exciting to me. It's yeah. uh, scary, but interesting for sure. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out about all of this shortly after you do. So you can <laughs> yeah. follow Kyle on Twitter at Driveline Bases, and you can find out more about Driveline Baseball at drivelinebaseball.com. So thanks, Kyle, for uh, doing the research and keeping us all apprised. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks for having me on. All right, we'll be back with Andrew Perpetua after a quick word from our sponsors. In order to run your own business successfully, attention to detail is critical. One contract slip up or legal misunderstanding can really set you back. If you've been watching Better Call Saul this season, you know that's true. Fortunately, there's LegalZoom. You may already know that over a million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their businesses, but LegalZoom services go well beyond business formation. They built a nationwide network of independent attorneys who can provide legal answers to the day-to-day -day questions you have about your business. Because let's face it, things like trademarks, employment laws, and lease agreements can get pretty complicated. So don't waste your valuable time trying to wrap your head around all the fine print? Use LegalZoom for that so you can focus on growing your business instead. You'll get the legal help you need without being billed by the hour since LegalZoom isn't a law firm. And it's easy to sign up. Just go to LegalZoom.com today and be sure to enter code MLBSHOW. That's one word in the referral box for special savings. Only at LegalZoom.com. This episode is also brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed. 
There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get the app, you can be anywhere. With just a few taps, instantly find seats. SeatGeek has been sponsoring us for a while now, and I've gotten good feedback from a lot of listeners who've used it. And SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And it doesn't end with sports. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available, too. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, and then enter the promo code Ringer MLB. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase, so download the SeatGeek app, and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. Now let's get back to baseball. All right, so we are joined now by Andrew Perpetua. He is a writer for Rotographs, Fangraphs, Fantasy Side, and he is also the proprietor of XStats, xstats.org, which is a stat full of statcast stats that helps evaluate players and predict players' performance using statcast stats only. Andrew, hello. Hello. So you've been working on XStats in some form since 2015 when the statcast data first came out. How have you seen it change and improve over that time? Not just your site, but MLB's data capture and and presentation. Well, the the most obvious way it's changed is just reliability of the stats. Um, Mm -hmm. If you remember back in 2015, probably between 30 and 40% of the data was missing. Yeah. And from what I understand, a lot of that was due to the back end of how the stats were translated from real-time measurements to what was given to Major League Baseball mm-hmm. was not finalized in any kind of reliable way. So it took, as opposed to taking a few hours to finalize a game, it may have taken several months. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think that was that's the the biggest way it's it's gotten better over time. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's been a lot more stats this year and uh, last year compared to 2015. Mm-hmm. So at first, we only had. Uh, exit velocity, really, didn't we? Right. And now we have launch angle. So the basic idea of what you do is looking at the process instead of the results. And and if a hitter is hitting the ball in a certain way, then we can predict what his results perhaps should have been or what they will be in the future if he keeps hitting the ball that way, regardless of how well he has actually played if you look at the results and the stats. So what is the biggest benefit, I guess? How quickly does StatCast data help us find something out about a player that the traditional stats or the slash stats wouldn't tell us and how big a difference does it make personally i i think the the biggest benefit comes from trying to, to parse out the difference between an actual change and just kind of luck yeah. whereas uh in the in traditionally we just kind of look at babip as luck so if you know if someone has like a 460 babip you assume that they're going to regress whereas when you when you're looking at the the statcast derived things you can be a little bit uh, more fine-tuned with how you might expect someone to regress like uh for instance earlier this year chris davis uh with a k he was hitting basically very few, like I think maybe a quarter as many pop-ups as he usually hits. And I don't mean pop-ups as in infield pop-ups. I mean just 
poorly hit fly balls that had a launch angle that was a little bit too high. Uh, generally, I think he hits like 16% of his balls above 39 degrees. And earlier in this season, he was hitting like 4%. So that is, and I know a lot of people were looking at him and thinking, you know, is this, is this a real sustainable change? Like, is Chris Davis actually going to be a 300 hitter now? And the answer was no, he's going to hit pop-ups because that's what he does. Yeah. So I was uh, looking at the article you wrote about uh, StatCast and, and XStats for the Hardball Times, and you started by saying that StatCast is one of the, the most powerful analytical tools uh, that baseball's ever seen. And I agree with that, but it also makes it kind of frustrating the way that Major League Baseball's released the data. They've been reluctant to try to encourage any sort of large end research in the way that you would see in the old days of BP or at Fangraphs. And what they've been putting out is essentially novelty, like novelty and trivia. So you get the the graphs with the launch angle and the exit velocity of every home run, and you see, oh, Aaron Judge hit that ball at 121 miles an hour. I mean, and that's fun, but it's not necessarily informative. So, you know, I guess to turn this into a question, what use is is this, I guess, born out of a desire to, you know, get the the full analytical use out of Statcast for and make that available for public consumption? Yes, I <laughs> my 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 original intent was that I I have no idea, or at least at the time, I had no idea what exit velocity meant or what launch angle meant. So I wanted to to have a way of um, using these stats to analyze players but without having any understanding of what these stats on their own might mean. So I just started combining like hit balls and seeing what patterns developed out of that. So that's that's where X stats came from. For Statcast in general, I think it's it's a really big problem that baseball is going through right now and that a lot of the really cool stuff they can't release publicly because of, I'm not really sure how that works, but a lot of the really cool stuff they can't release publicly. And at the same time, they want to drum up enthusiasm and, and attention. So it, it becomes frustrating for us because we want the access to the cool data, but for them, it's kind of an entertainment industry question where they want to entertain you. Like that's their primary goal. So it's, it's a lot of conflicting motivations. Mm -hmm. And have you heard from them at all? Do they have any issue with you manipulating the data in the ways that you have, you know, with temperature adjustments and ballpark adjustments and things that in theory should make it more accurate, but are not baked into the stats as they're provided? I, I'm assuming you mean Major League Baseball. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Because uh, I, I've talked to Major League Baseball and I've talked to TrackMan. So, um, but uh, with baseball, I don't think they have a problem. I mean, I've I've talked to a bunch of people in baseball, and they've never said anything bad about it. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't think that's a problem. But I mean, this is a really kind of sensitive sensitive topic because there are a lot of things going on under the hood that I think people should know about, but aren't necessarily public information, and it's kind of hard to figure out where to draw the line and, and like what you're even allowed to talk about like do you know what i mean it's it's really hard <laughs> yeah i guess can you expand on that without giving away the game or so i i know in in 2015 there were a lot of data problems 
And I think at one point, they have to run an algorithm after every game to finalize the data. And, and I know Tom Tango has, uh, he, re- he wrote about this recently, where it's especially important with pitch location, where you have to, you have to run an algorithm after the game to finalize like the break on a, on a ball, because the, the live algorithm isn't necessarily as accurate as you would want it to be. So for instance, you, on, on like a curveball, um, the live algorithm might, it can only, you know, take so many data points before it's, uh, with which to draw the trajectory of the curve of the pitch. So if your final trajectory point is before the break of the curveball, then it reports a curveball with zero break. And I, I only mean this in terms of pitch location, not in terms of how much it breaks, because the system knows how much it actually broke. But if you if you're just looking at the you know the pitch location like uh you know the old pitch fx location mm-hmm. on the plate in the strike zone it would have a curveball that had zero break so it would it might draw it at the top of the zone when in reality it was at the bottom of the zone so you know there there are problems like that so the uh, after game algorithm fixes that and it draws the correct trajectory for every batted ball so this is this has been a problem in 2015 when that after game algorithm was not very fast and they fell thousands of games behind live baseball. So it took them a long time to catch up. And as a result, we were missing a lot of data. Mm-hmm. And also this year, Tom Tango has written about this where you uh, don't necessarily have the best live data for pitch location even this year, even after two years of development on the, the algorithm. So, so that that's just kind of one of the the problems. So, what are the most useful applications of X stats? Do you think, and and how much more useful is it for hitters than pitchers, if at all? Because I'm I'm curious about the latter, just because we look at exit velocity and launch angle for hitters, and that seems to tell us something. But it's hard to say whether it does for pitchers, because we go beyond BABIP now, and we say that this pitcher is allowing a low BABIP, yes, but he's also suppressing hard contact, and it seems like he's doing things that should lead to a low BABIP. But I don't know at least how sustainable that is. Like maybe that's just a more specific way of identifying something that also can't continue just the way that a low Babbitt can't. Maybe allowing a low launch angle or, or allowing a low exit velocity can't. So do we know exactly? Can we use this to to say that this pitcher's low Babbitt is more sustainable than that pitcher's, or is it too early to tell? For Babbitt, it's very difficult with X stats. My expected BABIP is it it it, it is a lot better than um than regular BABIP for predicting a pitcher, but mm-hmm. it's still nowhere near where you would want it to be for for to actually estimate where the pitcher is going to be in the future. It's mm-hmm. it's like it's twice as good as the old BABIP, but the old BABIP was so bad that twice as good isn't good enough. So right. um in terms of launch angle. The pitcher definitely controls launch angle, and I, I, that's, I think that's pretty obvious because you have ground balls and fly ball pitchers. Sure. But, but even beyond, beyond just the launch angle, if you look at the highest end batted balls, and I, I have a stat called uh, value hits, which it counts how many extremely high valuable, high value balls that a pitcher gives up or a batter hits. And, uh, and then there's kind of the analog from Major League Baseball called barrels, which is mm-hmm. pretty much the same thing. Oh, the mine came out first. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
the uh, those high end value, the high value balls are definitely predictive of future success for a pitcher or for a batter. It, it might actually be one of the most predictive qualities. Um, so low end, low end contact might not be very predictive and medium contact is not predictive at all. But high end contact is definitely predictive. So if you have a pitcher who is not giving up any high end contact, that is good. Mm-hmm. So this is something, you know, just the the decision as to how to output your data, whether to use, you know, try to put a numerical value on every single hit and average it or whether to, to put them into buckets like this, you know, that that can sort of it's a it's a big decision to make when you're deciding what to actually publish. So how did you come around to the idea of of using discrete outputs like this rather than a sliding scale value hits versus medium or, or poor well for for value hits it was it was one of the first stats that i came up with in, in 2015 and when when i was going through the data um the, the first thing i and back then you have to remember we only had exit velocity and we had nothing else mm-hmm. so back then i was going through the exit velocity and i realized that um using exit velocity i could easily predict Two things, really. I could predict how many runs would score in a game, although I couldn't tell you which team would score it, but I could tell you like there would be eight runs in that game, just judging by exit velocity alone. And um and the other thing I could tell you was which batters were more likely to uh have higher WOBA weighted on base average. So I, I could tell you those two things uh, right off the bat, just using exit velocity alone. And I figured that the higher end guys that, who are producing the most value with their bat, I, f- I found out that if I just cut off a, an, an expected WOBA of a 0.9, which is roughly equal to a single in the, the weighting. So if I gave a, a 0.9 WOBA or higher on a batted ball, that tended to uh, correlate with how good they were as an overall offensive player so that's that's really how i came up with it because it it was born just out of necessity we only had exit velocity so your options were basically just report players who had the highest exit velocity which is boring and doesn't really tell you anything or um just try to connect exit velocity to value somehow and i figured that just combining exit velocity and um you know line drive rate and fly ball rate you could estimate just on on that metric. How much less time does it take for the data you're presenting, or you know, a, a, an expected level of production based on Statcast? How much more quickly, roughly, would that start to be meaningful than just a hitter's actual slash stats or something like that? I think this is kind of a loaded question uh, because mm-hmm. I think, and I, there's, there's a lot of evidence to back it up that Statcast derives stats are more meaningful uh, much more quickly, mm-hmm. but it is, it's only meaningful within a window of time. So, so you know that I, I, you, can, you can basically use it to predict what the next 50 or 60 plate appearances might be for either a pitcher or a batter. Mm-hmm. But over those 50 or 60 plate appearances, something may change that dramatically changes you know, how, how the player is going to be to perform over time. Like for instance, uh, say a batter figured out how to hit a low inside pitch and pitchers were throwing him that pitch to get him out, but now he hits it. 
-hmm. So they have to figure out a new way to get him out. And that new way to get him out might nuke your stats, you know? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that these stat cast derived stats seem to measure skill level on a very low level. So you can Mm -hmm. really measure exactly how much skill the the player has at that moment. But skill is a constantly varying trait in the player. Uh And uh, over time, it can vary a lot. Yeah. And speaking of that, you wrote something at Rotographs last month about misconceptions about launch angle. And there is a lot of talk about hitters changing their skill level by changing their launch angle or, or focusing on that. What were some of the misconceptions you identified? Well, there was one misconception that I personally find kind of offensive, and it was that batted balls between between a line drive and a fly ball, batted balls between those two extremes had no value. And that could not possibly be further from the truth because it it, it was basically, I'm not going to quote the person who said this, but uh, they, they said that a ball between 20 and 25 degrees is useless and you should only hit balls either below 20 degrees or above 25 degrees. And, and not above 35 degrees. So that, that was, that was the argument. And that argument is totally wrong. It's totally wrong. You know why they'd say that? Because that just seems to be counterintuitive on its face. I, I think, I think this is, I think they say it because one of the first things that came out when we started getting exit velocity and launch angle data, that people wanted to know which angles produce home runs. And most home runs come between 25 and 30 degrees. And if you want to hit a home run, your best angle is like 27 or 28 degrees. So people said, oh, so 27, 28, that's perfect. Everything else is bad. That's just not true though. That's, that's only good for home runs, but you want to hit doubles too. You know, you want to hit singles. And if you want to maximize your value, you want to hit it between 19 and 26 degrees and, and lower is better. So it's, it's better to hit it 18 degrees than it is to hit it 27 degrees. Mm-hmm. And have you encountered any resistance to this or or have you come up with a good way to explain it to someone? Because I've found in the past that often people will accept the idea of sabermetric stats or advanced stats if you explain the concept, but they're uncomfortable with adjustments and hypotheticals and here's what should have happened or would have happened or could have happened. And when you start making adjustments for, you know, ballpark or temperature or just what you're doing, which is essentially trying to eliminate the luck factor or quantify it at least, then I think people are suspicious about assumptions you're making or hypotheticals. And do you have any go-to examples or, or ways of conveying the value of looking at stats this way? I think StatCast should probably be one of the things that really unites the old school way of thinking of baseball and the sabermetrician way of looking at baseball, mm-hmm. because it, it lets the old school people, you know, stand on their soapbox and about, you know, you know, we've been telling you this for years, you need to hit the ball like this or whatever. So mm-hmm. it, what, what we're, we're learning that line drives are the best batted ball period. Like, uh, they're the best for home runs and they're the best for batting average. They're the best for slugging. They're the best for everything. They're just the best. So, and I, I think that harkens back to, just the old school mindset of baseball in general. And I, I think that make is satisfies the old school crowd. And I think that's something that we should all unite around and be happy about. So instead of constantly having friction, we should just say like, yes, 
they were right in the past and and just the, the stats say certain things and those things are true as well as line drives are the best so i i think from that point of view i think it's it should be a uniting force between in, in baseball i i really hope it is in the long in the long run because the fights between sabermetrics and old school is tired and i'm sick of it and also on on a coaching point of view i think the players latch onto it because it it's it's a negative feedback loop. You can you can see that if I hit the ball this way, it's bad and I shouldn't do it. And uh, if I hit the ball that way, it's good and I should do it. And it, it forces you to make adjustments, either consciously or subconsciously, to continue doing the good thing and stop doing the bad thing. And I, I think on on a human level, I think that everybody can relate to that. But if you're just talking about uh, the predictive nature of the stats. I think that's a different story. <laughs> I think that's that's something that's really hard to communicate to people. And I think people in the sabermetric community don't don't really like it either. I like uh, with all the the defense, you know, independent pitching and the dip, the dips, and all all that mm -hmm. stuff. It all kind of threw batted balls into a single bucket. And said that, that bucket is stupid, and we should only focus on other things that are not in that bucket. And I, I think that's a sort of mindset that's going to take a, a really long time to break out of. And um, I think that's unfortunate. <laughs> so you brought up how adding launch angle changed the way that you were able to work with the data. What's the next innovation, whether it's technological or, or in terms of tracking or, you know, something that you want to be able to do in terms of manipulating the data? What's the, the next toy you want to play with that doesn't exist yet? Okay. Well, there are several pieces. Can we understand it if you explained it to us or? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it's definitely not complicated, but okay. I, they're the biggest pieces of information that I want right now are game time humidity because I think that plays a really big factor in um, in just success and failure in the baseball field. I think it's it's a, a totally underrated factor. And uh, anyway, so I I want humidity. I want uh, batted ball spin rate, which is very difficult to do. I I, I can talk about that if you want to. But uh, yeah, so humidity, spin rate, and player speed. I guess uh, foot speed. Mm -hmm. Base to base mm -hmm. speed, really. Not, I don't, I don't want straight line speed. I want base to base speed. And uh, I don't know if you have, if you have any ideas beyond that. Like I'm all ears. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to know what information you're going to need in the future. <laughs> if you know what yeah, I, mean. I guess it's that's very hard to predict it. <laughs> but those are the things I want now. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Because this seems like a lot of work, and you know, I, I'm just curious what would motivate somebody to do this much work, you know, for a hobby. I guess. Um, just because nobody else was doing it, I guess. Uh, I, I've always wanted objectively measured stats because I, I don't like the subjective nature of certain stat systems. You know, where you have a person judge how hard a ball was hit. I don't, I don't like that, and. Um, Especially with uh, defensive metrics, uh, those are extremely difficult uh, when they're subjective. I mean, they're difficult no matter what. Like, I don't even know how to handle defense. But I, I just, I've always been drawn to objective measures, and I like challenges, and nobody was doing this problem, and I didn't know how to do it either. So I figured if no one's doing it, it may as well be me. Mm -hmm. And lastly, for me, is there any player or players who 
sticks out now as someone your stats evaluate much differently from the surface stats? Nick Castellanos is one of the guys that my stats love him to death, but his performance this season has not been good at all. Uh, so I, I think he is definitely the number one guy that I would say my stats love him. They, they think that he's basically, they say that he should basically be a 280 hitter with 30 plus home runs this year, but he's not doing that, is he? <laughs> No. All right. Well, you can find Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Perpetua. You can find him writing at Rotographs and you can find XStats at XStats.org. So thanks, Andrew, for doing all the work and for telling us about it. All right. Thank you. So both Kyle and Andrew talked about challenging assumptions and, you know, sort of the stats versus scouts debate from the past, you know, from 10 years ago. And like, Mm I guess what I hope never happens to me, and I think we talked about this with like the state of sabermetrics episode that we did last season, but what causes people to reject new information isn't a numeracy or a lack of curiosity even. It's I think it's just the fear that their job's gonna get harder. Like if uh-huh. you know, coaches have to have to relearn the way that they're teaching or analysts or writers have to learn new things to, you know, they can't just sit back on cliches the the way they, they did fifteen years ago. And like even yeah. like you and I got into this way after after Moneyball and the sabermetric revolution was already in progress. But even then, mm-hmm. like Andrew brought up dips theory in particular, and that like that was huge when I was first getting started, like, you know, seven to ten years ago. And now mm-hmm. we know so much more about it. And like we'd be embarrassed by the things that we were writing in 2010. So I don't know. I guess I hope I never get so old that I get lazy, but you know, it's a, <laughs> yeah. a constant struggle. Yeah, well, there's. I think if you have some level of intellectual curiosity, that is something you can keep throughout life, hopefully. And it's something we talked to Tom Verducci about, right? He's mm-hmm. been doing this for a long time, and he's still very much up on the latest developments. So I hope that will be the case for us too. But yeah, you can definitely see it getting more difficult. It was less accurate and less telling and revealing in the past when we would just say, this guy's BABIP is X and it won't continue to be X, whereas now it's complicated. We have to do a lot more research and go to a lot more sites and run a lot more queries to look at launch angle and spin rate and all of these additional complications that are giving us more to write about, but also giving us more work to do to arrive at those conclusions. But I think it's it's for the best, although there are times when even I feel overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there. There's always something else you could look at before you draw a conclusion. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's something that since there's sort of been a taking stock of the sabermetric community in the past week, but, you know, not like every innovation is going to be the truth. And you can look at, I would recommend recommend Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid, which is a book about the history of soccer tactics and about innovations that have sort of led people on the wrong analytical path. So, you know, it's still good to keep up a healthy skepticism, but I guess like the the greatest sin you can commit is a lack of curiosity. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will be back to indulge our curiosity further with another episode on Thursday. Talk to you then. It's a good dismount, Ben. (laughs) Thank you.
How much wine do you drink? And how much of that wine do you actually enjoy? Finding new wines that are up to par can be tricky. Thankfully, NakedWines.com connects everyday wine drinkers and winemakers more closely than ever before, granting you access to unique wines from across the globe. Better yet, by removing a huge chunk of costs, they save you up to 60% on your wine. Get $100 off your first order. Try 12 of NakedWines.com's favorites for only $79. And learn more at NakedWines.com MLB.